I'm Dave Binocco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. I'm excited to provide this special edition of the From My Angle podcast, a unique one in that it features snippets from a recent interview I did with higher education expert Jeff Salingo. This is Jeff's second appearance on the podcast. You may find our February 2019 episode on innovation and evolution in the higher ed space to be of interest as well. Parrish hosted Jeff virtually on October 14th, 2020, for some 750 parents and educators from across the country. Jeff and I discussed the college admissions landscape, an area of expertise of his, and the subject of several of his books, including the recently released Who Gets It and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions. Who Gets In is a terrifically readable and informative book based on a year of reporting Jeff did while embedded in three college admissions offices across the country. Jeff also followed nearly a dozen seniors as they walked through their application process and chronicled some of their journey within the book. In our interview, Jeff and I explore what he means by colleges that are buyers and sellers, the importance of building a college list wisely, and the pros and cons of early decision application, among other topics. Jeff's in-depth reporting and powerful storytelling provides insights on the inner workings of universities. You can find it in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Chronicle of Education. Jeff also co-hosts one of my favorite podcasts, Future You, on the evolution and changes and issues of pertinence in higher education. I hope you enjoy this episode, a special episode, and this recent interview with Jeff Salingo on From My Angle Podcast. So let's jump into the Q&A. Jeff, once again, welcome. Thank you for being here. We're going to speak tonight about what you call in your book, and I quote, the most mysterious, misunderstood, and debated aspect of American higher education, college admissions. So with a lot of ground to cover, let's start with a couple of general questions. Set the context for who gets in and why. How did you go about your reporting uh, for this book? So, uh, I, as you mentioned in the introduction, I've been writing about higher education for more than 20 years. Uh, and in recent years, anytime I wrote about college admissions, I would get inundated with emails, mostly from parents, who were wondering why it's so difficult to get into college these days, especially compared to when they went to college uh, in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, and it made me start to realize, is it so much different? Is it so much different than the 80s? Uh, and so I wanted to go in and take a deep dive into the admissions ecosystem. Uh, and so what I did was I approached 24 colleges and universities uh, two summers ago and asked them if I could sit inside their offices and bed in their offices as they were choosing a class. And I purposely picked selective colleges and universities, even though, as I say in the book, there are thousands of great colleges and universities out there, most of whom accept most of the applicants who apply. And I think that's really important to talk about tonight. The average acceptance rate at American colleges and universities is 65%. So it's actually not as hard as we think it is to get into college. What we're really talking about is about 200 colleges that are called selective colleges because they accept fewer than 50%. And I actually focused on those colleges in particular because that's where the decisions are harder uh, because they're inundated with applications and, um, and they don't have enough seats. So I approached 24 selective colleges, three said yes, uh, a big public in the University of Washington, a big private in, uh, in Emory University and a small liberal arts college in Davidson College in, in North Carolina. 
but I also wanted to tell parents and show parents and students the rest of the system. So I take them on a journey through the year in college admissions, not only within those three offices, but I also followed a couple of dozen high school seniors that year, and I picked three in particular uh, to follow their stories, and they applied everywhere, by the way, not just those three colleges. And then the other group of people that I focus on in the book are what I call the influencers that you as parents and students never see mostly. Sometimes the counselors, but uh, the people who run the testing agencies, the US News and World Report rankings, the direct marketing companies. And if you're a parent, you probably know this, your kid gets inundated with mail, uh, snail mail uh, and email. And I wanted to know, why do you get so much mail? By the way, and your neighbor might not get any. Uh, and, and also the financial aid advisors that work with colleges to say why Dave gets a thousand more dollars a year than I do in in financial aid, even if we come from the same financial background. So it's those three buckets of characters uh, that I interweave through this, uh, through this book. And and again, I spent a year inside the process. And of course they're all interrelated. I'm an anxious parent and now I'm one of thousands of anxious parents whose kids are sending their applications to essentially the same 20 to 30 schools that have seen their application numbers grow uh, extensively over the last 15 years. So you structure your book in three parts, fall, the recruitment season, winter, the reading season, and spring, decision season. And these align with the aspects relevant to the time of year in the admission cycle. So I'd like to actually do the same with my questions, targeting them to the features of the admissions process you cover in each section. We won't get to them all but I think this is a helpful way for parents who are uh, parents of juniors or seniors to think about it. Let's look at fall, the recruitment season. A major premise of your book is that the business of college admissions is more about what the college needs in an incoming class than it is about an individual applicant's achievements. In fact, you write that, quote, college's agenda drive the search by With this in mind, let's look at this fall season. You make a distinction between colleges that are buyers and those that are sellers. Explain what you mean and how this concept colors the entire admissions process. And this is something that I don't think enough parents and students understand. I hear so often from parents who say, I make too much money to qualify for financial aid, but I don't make enough money to write a check for if I'm going to a private $60,000, $70,000 a year for four years. Uh, And what ends up happening with those parents, and I saw this in reporting the book, is that they start the college search with their children and they say to their children, you know, we want, you have potential and we want you to go and, and, and fulfill that potential wherever you want. And so they start to make this college list thinking about the academic and social fit. The social fit could also be location, right? They want to be in a certain location. The financial fit, though, doesn't really come into the picture at that point because they think, well, everybody gets one of these discounts we keep hearing about, or I'll figure out a way to pay for college. And then what happens is exactly what happened to many of the students that I followed is they um, apply to a set of schools, usually very selective schools. And then in March, they get accepted maybe only to a couple of them. And then their financial aid packages come and they run into their counselor and they say, my parents expected more money. And where is it? Why didn't I get it? And what I discovered in the process of this year is that they applied to what I call in the book and I refer to as sellers. So sellers are a set of institutions, and I kind of really go into detail in the book about this. There are about 60 or 70 institutions. And the best way to think about these colleges, they're the halves of admissions. They're the top ranked institutions. They get way many more applicants than they have seats. So 
they don't need to give discounts out to people they perceive could either afford it or could figure out how to afford it. So they focus most of their financial aid on need-based aid as applied by a government formula. The vast majority of colleges out there, though, are buyers. And these are not a, this is not a binary group. There's a, a, buyers could be on a spectrum, uh, as I explain in the book. And buyers, though, are colleges. And by the way, this has nothing to do with their educational quality. There's a lot of really good name brand buyers out there. But the, the buyers, for example, they dedicate most of their financial aid or a significant chunk of their financial aid to non-need-based aid financial aid. And so what they're doing is, if you're one of those parents, you're a little bit above the income cutoff for financial aid need-based, they will say, yeah, but we really want you. And we know if we give you, you know, if it's, we give you $25,000, you're going to be able to afford the rest. And so they discount tuition. And so a great example of this, and one of the schools I followed in the book is Emory. So Emory University, only 9% of their financial aid goes to non-need-based aid. They're a seller. Now, often when you're looking at an Emory, you're probably also looking at a Tulane. Very similar in terms of their scores and everything else. Tulane is a buyer. So more than 50% of Tulane's financial aid goes to non-need-based aid, right? Because they are trying to, too often in many cases, Tulane is a second choice school for some students. And so they have to lure students in with, um, with, uh, with financial aid and with these merit-based discounts. So this is really key for parents to understand before they start the college search, to understand who's a buyer and seller because you want a mix of both on your list. Because if you end up with only sellers on your list, A, you're probably your son or daughter is not going to get into many of them. And even if they do, you may not get the financial aid package that you need. And we'll return to that a little bit in the spring session. We can't underscore that point uh, enough tonight. On Jeff's webpage, jeffsalino.com, he actually has a list of buyer and seller schools that you can uh, go to if you sign up to uh, be part of his uh, of his communication there. And, and it's very important to consider uh, places that have high yield, the people that get accepted um, generally come, and to look at a school's amount of um, uh, financial aid issued um, for um, merit. And, uh, and and by the way, Dave, these are all public right. records, right? You could, you as an applicant and parent, you could find this data that's out there. It's, it's listed for every college. And also parents, again, if you're listening, I know I love our parents here. They are thinking buyers and sellers as winner and loser. It's not a no, binary. Not. They're excellent schools that are buyers. It's just a disposition that they take in their relationship with the applicant. But you then also draw a distinction between uh, college applicants themselves, right? Two different types. So there are some college applicants, juniors or seniors, who are drivers and others who are passengers. And I know parents, as you li as they listen to your description, will be able to identify which category their child fits into. Tell us what makes a high school junior or senior a driver uh, or a passenger. Right. So a driver is the type of student who really is, is takes the uh, college search really into their hands. They're, they're driving the process. Uh, they're on top of the applications and the deadlines and things like that. There are very few drivers in this, in this process. Most students kind of get into the stream of, of college admissions and let it carry along with them. And, and in, in re reporting the book, I met many parents who were kind of frustrated, and you probably have some on the, uh, in the room tonight, right, who are saying, I just wish my son or daughter would you know, do this on, on time or do that on time. And what I remind parents in the book is to you know, gentle nudge, but, but let them drive the process. Because one of the things that I found in the book 
And when you read the book and you, you follow the students that I follow, the students who ended up happiest at the end of the process used the college search process as a learning process. I don't think we quite get sometimes just how much the teen, and Dave, you know, as an educator, right, just how much the teenage brain is changing between, say, the beginning of junior year when you might be beginning the search and the end of senior year when you're, you're doing it, right? It's only, it's two years out of our life, which may not seem a lot at our age, right? But in their age and at their development, um, it is a huge difference. And so you really want them to be able to change their mind as they're going through this process. Yeah, really uh, excellent advice there as you think about how you work with your parents. Uh, this buyer, seller, driver, passenger framework should inform one of the earliest and most important parts of the college search, building one's college list. In fact, you warn in the book that constructing a list is, quote, not an exercise that should be left to teenage indifference. Explain to us what you mean by that when it comes to building the college list. So I think what I found is that too many students uh, you know, so colleges think about a, a recruitment funnel. Uh, it's very wide at the top. They're trying to get as many students in it as possible. And then it narrows as you go through the admissions process. Students in some ways have their own funnel uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of colleges that they have on this list. The problem is students are starting down here, right? They're starting a, a narrow part of the funnel rather than thinking more widely about what is out there. And that's key in making the college list. So we talked earlier about financial fit. You want to make sure that the colleges on this list are a good academic fit, a good a social fit, and a good a financial fit. You also want to make sure that these are places that you love every single one of them. And this is the one problem that I saw in, in constructing these lists. Students, you know, most counselors out there, and, and I don't want to overrule any counselors, so always pay attention to what your own school counselors say. But many counselors will say, you know, three schools that are an academic stretch, three schools that are kind of foundational in the middle, and then three schools that we once called safety schools, but that you know you can get in and then maybe throw another school on that list for, for good luck. So 10 schools. But the problem is, is that those stretch schools sometimes are out of reach schools for many students. And so there's a lot of creep in the, in the list. And what I found is that students fell in love with those schools that, to be honest with you, they had a very little chance of getting in. And they added those schools, the safety schools, just to have them because somebody told them they had to have them. And they didn't fall in love with those places. And so what happens then in the spring is they're ending up at one of those places. And so it's really important that you love every college on that list. Yes, there could be a priority of that list of nine or 10 or whatever you have, but make sure that those are really good fits for you. And by the way, it could change. Yeah. But don't, this is where, it, you know, don't leave it to teenage indifference. Don't say, well, I have this favorite school and then I'm going to fill out the rest of it with just random names because it's one of those random names where you might end up. So let's get to the winter, the reading season. I think this is where parents are going to really perk up because this is where we get into things like, how do they get in? What's the formula? So if the fall is about building a list and applying to college, the winter is when the applicant's file is read and parents and students want to know this formula, Jeff, right? The rules of the game that will distinguish one applicant from another. There's got to be a secret sauce. Yet, as you write, quote, how colleges define the worthiness of applicants tends to shift over time based on an institution's needs, and they are, quote, constantly tweaking the selection process based on data they're collecting on why undergrads succeed on campus, end quote. 
So with this in mind, let's look at merit, early decision, and the traits that make an applicant what you refer to as a, quote, diamond in the eyes of an admissions fire reader. You note that parents, quote, conflate merit with achievement. Explain what you mean, and to the degree as possible, tell us what in a student's academic profile, grades, test scores, extracurricular activities matters most. So many parents that I've met over time, um, they, they say, oh, my son worked really hard to get uh, to be you know, captain of the football team, or my daughter worked really hard to get that 95 on that test and things like that. That's achievement. Merit, as college admissions officers see it, is something that you grow into over time. You're, you learn, you're curious, you're, you're getting better, uh, you're constantly practicing and getting better in, in what you're doing. They wanna make sure, most of all, particularly students who go to really good high schools and have come from really good, you know, great, you know, their parents have invested in their education, they come from, you know, wealthier families in most cases, right? They want to make sure that they didn't peak in high school. So this idea, and, and, and maybe many people in the room tonight have heard of this idea of a growth mindset, yeah. that you don't think that your learning is fixed, that you're constantly wanting to do more and learn more. They want students like that, and that's what they're looking for. They want to make sure that students haven't peaked in high school. Mm -hmm. So what are they looking for, Dave? Almost, so every college has a different system, and I explain that in the book for assessing applicants. Uh, most of them have a scoring system. As I explained in the book, it could be one to five, one to 10 in multiple categories. But overall, they're especially selective colleges, and we know this also from the data of surveys, they are looking at two primary things. And I'm gonna repeat this over and over again tonight because testing isn't one of them. Uh, the SAT and ACT is not one of the two top things they look at. They look at high school courses that you're taking and the grades you got in those courses. That is most critical to them. So they might spend eight to 10 minutes on an application. And let me take uh, Emory as an example. So Emory uses something called committee-based evaluation where there are two readers in a room at a time and they are dissecting a application over the course of eight minutes. One of the readers, usually the more senior one, opens up the application and they're looking at the high school. The other application reader is looking at the student, um, the essay uh, and, uh, and activities and things like that and what the parents do, for example. Uh, but the, the primary reader is diving into that curriculum. What are the courses they took? And this is important. What were the courses available to them? So they either know the high school really well because they visited your high school and they get kids from your high school every year, or they pull up something called a high school profile that comes along with every application and they're gonna see, well, this, course, this school offers 25 APs. How many AP courses did this student take? Did they offer AP, AB, uh, Calc AB and BC, right? And this kid wants to major in some sort of STEM field. Did they take that? That's the first thing they're going to do. They're going to look at your course selection. And really what they're looking for is, if you wanna to come to this selective college, and especially if you wanna major in the sciences, for example, um, or if you want to major in the humanities, they're going to look at your humanities courses. They want to make sure, did you choose the, essentially the most difficult courses you could take in that high school? And then how did you do in them? That doesn't mean you have to have straight A's, but you definitely can't be like this. You can't be on a downward trend and you can't be all over the place. Uh, if the, your grades are all over the place, that's also a red flag to them. They want something that's consistent. 
and where test degree, scores come into play. Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, and to a certain degree for parents who are like, uh, what should my freshman be doing? They, they want to see that trajectory of merit over time. So that freshman year in many cases. They want to see that growth. Yeah. You yeah. even note in the book, not that the freshman year is unimportant. It's the least important. It's the least important. When exactly. it comes, we need to talk about early decision, really, I think, in two, in, from two different angles. Uh, and we could do an entire hour long yeah. just on early decision. In fact, you opine that, quote, few things have contributed as much to the insanity of the admissions process more than early decision. At the highest level, what advantages and costs come with applying early decision? So early decision, as many people probably know, is a binding commitment. You apply in a couple of weeks, usually around November 1, you find out in December, you apply to one school, you find out in December whether you got in or not, or sometimes you're deferred till the spring. If you get in, you're committed to go and you're done. Um, this is really in the school's advantage. I'm not a big fan of early decision as I talk in the book because it really is, a, it really is all in the advantage of the, of the school because they get to lock in more of their class early. And as I talk in the book, especially since the 2008 recession, early decision has taken off at, at most selective schools where they're now taking 50% of their class uh, early. So Vanderbilt's a great example of this. So they might have a couple thousand students apply early. They're taking 50% of their class. Now, if you're on a tour at Vanderbilt, you're probably like, oh, well, they're still taking the other half. But what they don't tell you is the other half is only 700 spots, uh, 700 seats in the rest of that class. And there's like 25,000 applicants for those 700 seats. So yes, yeah, so early does increase your chances a little bit, but not as much as it used to. That's another thing, by the way, that has changed over the last 15 years because everybody now thinks it's easier to get in early, more people are applying, thus it's now more difficult uh, to get in early. The other thing that skews the early numbers that I think is important for parents is they take almost all recruited athletes early. So that fills up a lot of seats at, at, many, of these, uh, at many of these colleges. The big disadvantage to early is you cannot compare financial aid offers. If you don't care about that and you're easily can write a check to the college, your dream college, then good for you. And if you know you really want to go there. But if you want to go back to what we were talking about earlier and maybe have a chance at getting some nice uh, aid offers from those buyers we were talking about earlier, you're not going to be able to compare those in the spring like you normally would if you applied regular decision. And you've referenced this developmental evolution of the teenager. And so this admissions process because of early decision has now been pushed back into the junior yep. year, right? And so again, these students that are still just forming their own self-identity uh, are really being asked to, to confront this uh, college decision even earlier. So you write that, uh, quote, admissions officers cherish what is rare. A great takeaway, I think, for parents tonight. Yet, as we've talked about, a candidate's application will be read in eight to 12 minutes. You've already detailed how strength of student's schedule and her grades in those courses do the most to distinguish a candidate. But as admissions officers seek diamonds amidst the thousands of applications they read, touch again once more for the audience on the sense of the relative weight of the essay, the resume, and the teacher recommendation. So what the, uh, those other pieces are going to do is there are other data points to help um, distinguish applicants. So what happens, Dave, is that those first two pieces I talked about, you have tons of highly qualified students. And that's, that was one of the things that I didn't quite get when I first walked into these offices that year. Um, the depth and breadth of this poll. So think about all of you parents and students out there, think about your own high school and think about where you are situated in that high school. You might say, well, I'm in the top 10 of my class and I have a 
four point whatever. And a, if I got the SAT, I got a 14 whatever on it, right? You're really good. Now, replicate yourself and replicate several of your classmates across tens of thousands of high schools in the U.S. There are 43,000 high schools in the U.S. So that's what I didn't appreciate when I got into these rooms is I was reading these applications and, and I would say to myself, wait a second, didn't we just read this application five ago? Because it was all the same metrics over and over and over again. So that's where I, I call this the rough sword of the class, right? When, the, when Emory gets 30,000 applications, they could throw 15,000 out pretty quickly, right? But they have to get rid of another uh, like 8,000 of them, right? And so the, those 8,000 they're eventually going to get rid of, those students could really succeed at Emory. So they have to find reasons to push them out of the pool. And that's when they're looking at essays and they're looking at teacher recommendations. So just quickly on the essay, don't try to shoehorn 18 years into a couple hundred words. Pick one thing that really matters to you, be authentic about it, um, and, and talk about something maybe that your application doesn't talk about or something in your application that you really want them to know. Remember, you have eight to 10 minutes with them. If they met you in an elevator for those eight to 10 minutes, what do you want the admissions officers to know? So maybe there's a favorite activity. You have 10 activities on that common app and they all look the same to the admissions officer. What do you really care about? Or the person writing your recommendation could do the same thing for you, right? You're trying, the entire application should be a story about you that you could be talking uh, to somebody in, in eight to 10 minutes. On recommendations, uh, again, make sure they're, they're fairly consistent. I saw this, and again, you don't know what your recommender is going to say, but hopefully you're going to be talking to them in advance of that. I saw this often where a student, or a, more often a recommender, like a teacher or a counselor, would say, you know, Dave is really dedicated to this club and all this other stuff. And then they would look on the list of activities and the club wasn't even listed. Right? So they were like, well, what's, what's really going on here? Right? Either the, recommend, the person recommending the student doesn't know the student or the student doesn't really know how to tell the story. Mm -hmm. I always recommend about people giving recommendations. If you've had teachers more than once in high school, have them write the recommendation because they could talk about that growth we were talking about earlier. Or another alternative to that is if you want to major in STEM and your whole application is all about science and technology and math, and you had this terrific English teacher and you did really well in English, have them write the recommendation. Again, they're always going to be looking for that difference as they have all of the sea of sameness uh, among applications. So you described this spring as the time, quote, where the selection process at selective admissions is actually the most unfair and is less about merit. And what may surprise many, you note that, quote, these final decisions depend on what the class looks like or how much students in the admin bin will cost to enroll. So these financial aspects of the admissions process that you explore in the book, I think are among the most important for students to understand, yet they receive far less attention from applicant families than they should. So talk to us about how colleges use tuition discounts as a strategic lever rather than a financial aid tool. Yeah, and Dave, I wanna pause just for a quick second here because you're probably, if you're on the other side of us here, you're probably listening to that and you're like, oh my God, this is like depressing, right? Like, um, I'm not meant to do that, right? I'm actually trying to reduce your anxiety level, believe it or not. What I'm trying to do with my stories tonight and the book 
is for you to understand the playing field, to understand the rules. Think about this as a sport you never played. And now, and I just explained the rules to you. Now you may get out on the field and you may not perform very well, but aren't you glad you understand the rules? And that's what I'm trying to help you understand tonight. First of all, that you balance your list the way that we did so that you don't think, oh, I'm pretty good in my high school. I'm going to go to all these top schools so that you balance your list. But then when you compete in, that, in those pools, hopefully you will do better because of what I'm telling you tonight. So again, not to, 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 uh, to depress you. So, um, and now Dave, I forgot your, your question. Well, the, the notion of uh, financial, really tuition oh, discounts yeah. is a strategic lever, not actual financial aid tool. Yeah, and so what really happens is remember, app, uh, acceptances are really an invitation to a class. It is not an agreement to enroll. And so colleges really want to use financial aid to enroll the number of students they need and not and get the amount of tuition revenue they need to enroll those students. And so what ends up happening is, remember, students could apply to nine or 10 schools, but they can actually only enroll in one. And you want to be the school that they enroll in. And you don't want to, you want to bring some money. You want them to bring some money to you. So this is how they use financial aid, where they have these really complex, and I call it the money ball of higher education, right? Where they hire these really sophisticated quants up in Chicago and everywhere else who do all this work for them in the background. And what they know, Dave, is, based on your grades and your test scores and where you live and everything like that, they know if they offer you um, a $25,000 scholarship and the school costs $75,000, they know that you will come and bring $50,000 in some way. You might, those might be loans and other outside monies that you have. Um, and they would rather give you $25,000 and three of your friends $25,000 than give $75,000 to one kid who actually may need it uh, to enroll because they're going to enroll four students instead of one. Um, and it's that constant leveraging. Um, and, and they know, particularly with students at the top of the income scale, they know $1,000 or $2,000 actually might make the difference between them enrolling or not. And again, you're going to get some revenue in the door and uh, as opposed to getting no revenue in the door if you have to give bigger, bigger scholarships. And this is a huge play for the buyers and buyers, universities and colleges that you talk about. And again, an equity issue in terms of who needs it versus who they're just strategically trying to get into uh, to, to, fill, to fill these seats. But it, uh, I think, is very informing uh, as parents think about that. I think you mentioned Lafayette in the book that actually takes 200 students from the admit bin and moves them to the uh, deny bin based on what they would cost to enroll, effectively how they were going to impact yeah. their financial aid budget. So yeah, they're in need aware, what's called the need aware school. So they're actually taking financial aid into consideration in admissions when they make those uh, as they're doing this. Yeah. So your reporting uncovers, again, how infrequently families discuss the cost of selective colleges when building a list, perhaps assuming falsely, as you mentioned at the top, that they'll receive a discount in the form of merit aid or financial aid award. How does this failure to discuss price return to it again and, and tell us how it starts to complicate the family's decision-making process if they're accepted in the spring. And you may reference the girl from California in the book because she's really the, the case study in this circumstance. Yeah, the, Grace, uh, who really wanted to go to a private college on the East Coast. Uh, yeah. She applied to Dartmouth early. She didn't get in. She got into Wellesley, um, which was her second choice. Um, she didn't get any uh, aid from there because Wellesley's a seller and she didn't know that. 
Um, and she ends up even going to Accepted Students Day. She falls in love with the place. She goes to visit the financial aid office. They tell her the same thing. They're like, look at all those students out there. We don't need to discount our tuition. Now, she ends up going to UCLA, so she ends up at a great place because she's from California. But when she was first putting together a list, she had no desire to stay in California and go to right. And again, this goes back to this idea, and I, I follow up with her later in the book, where she ends happy. up being very happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she ends up being very happy. But it was that point, again, where she even says, I kind of wish I took some of these other schools more seriously early on in the process because it would have been different. Yeah. So I mentioned the appendix. And as we transition to the audience questions, I, I just want to finish with what I think in all of your books has been one of your greatest gifts to those of us that are trying to bring some sanity to private preparatory education uh, and, the, and essentially the college search. And this is this notion that you write, quote, the anxiety about getting into a brand name school starts with the single fundamental principle believed by students and parents in top high schools that it matters where you go to college. Before we transition, reflect on your belief that it is actually what one does at college that is more important than where one goes to college. This is, I think, really hard for all of us to accept. Um, and I didn't go to a selective college, right? So I, I have a hard time kind of understanding this obsession sometimes with selective colleges. But the most important thing to remember about your college list is, say, we're take the rankings for an example here, right? you're not, when you put together a college list, you're not deciding between number five and number 500 in the rankings, right? If you look at any, you know, you go through your senior class there, Dave, and you look at their college list, they're going to be in a range of schools. Now, some might be 25 to 50, another might be 75 to 100, but they're going to be in a range. And when you, and trust me, I, I worked on the U.S. Students and World Report rankings. I interned there in college. I know what goes into these rankings. There's not a is there a difference between one and 100? Sure. Is there a difference between 15 and 25? Not really. And that's the thing I think we have to realize is that at the end of the day, as I talk in the book, you're talking about the difference between a, a honey crisp apple and a, and a delicious apple, right? You're not talking about the difference between a honey crisp apple and apple jacks, right? We're, we're talking about this essentially just shades of the same thing. And I think that's really important for parents um, to remember. The other important thing is that it really does matter what you do when you're in college. And we know this from the research, the majors, the faculty you get to know, the mentors that you have, the activities you participate in and who you get to know in those activities, the internships and undergraduate research, the projects that you get to know. We know Gallup has done a ton of work on this about successful people after graduation. And what they found over and over again is that two big things matter relationships, meaning mentors and getting to know a faculty member really well in college, and that project-based learning that goes on throughout college, whether it's, again, undergraduate research, a class project, internships, that hands-on learning. You get those two things, which, by the way, you could get at thousands of colleges out there, you're going to be golden in that job market. Now, are you going to be a Supreme Court justice? Are you going to be president of the United States? Are you going to be CEO of a company? Uh, probably not. Yep. But are you going to get a great job and have a great life? Sure. Yep. And I think that's the thing. We have to put this into a little bit of perspective. And I know that's easy for me to say, I didn't go to selective college, but you know what? I have a pretty good life here. Uh, as I mentioned in the book, my college roommate is anchor of ABC World News. You know, I, I, I sit on a board of people who are really successful. And if we measure life by success and jobs, you're going to do that at many places. 
Thank you for listening to this special edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, I will be with Stacey Todd, the director of the One Small Step program with StoryCorps, as we continue our exploration and reflection around the powerful theme of together, which is organizing our thoughts and reflections this year. Until then, thanks for listening to the From My Angle podcast.